Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Vesper Stamper is an illustrator and an author of young adult historical fiction. Her first novel, What the Night Sings, was nominated for the National Book Award in Young People's Literature. It was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award and the William C. Morris Debut Award. It was a Golden Kite Honor Book and was named the Best Young Adult Book of 2018 and 19 by the Young Adult Library Service Association, The Wall Street Journal, and Kirkus. Vesper Stamper's gorgeous new novel is called A Cloud of Outrageous Blue. It tells the story of a young woman finding her way during the Great Plague of 1348. Historical novels don't get much timelier. Vesper Stamper, thank you so much for being on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. It's good here. to be here. Uh, so you uh, are an illustrator as well as an author um, mm-hmm. and have been an illustrator longer than you've been an author. Far longer. Yeah. <laughs> so you never you're, thought I would be an author. So a crowd about, sorry, a cloud about rages blue is your second novel. Um, yeah. It's my second published the, novel. Mm-hmm. Second published novel, yeah. um, which you also illustrated. Yes. Um, tell I mean, what is, tell me about, um, go, going from being an illustrator to being an author or, or I guess I should say adding authoring on to, to illustration. How does that make, how does that change your writing process? How's your writing process different from somebody else? Well, I'm not trained as a writer, you know, I'm trained as an illustrator. I went to high school for visual art. I have two degrees in illustration and I, just assumed that I would be doing picture books. That was what I wanted to do since I was a kid. And uh-huh. I did illustrate picture books. I did album covers. I mean, I've done a lot over the 22 some odd years that I've been an illustrator, but um, I, I never imagined for a million years that I would be um, writing novels or doing anything long format. So the picture book was really my format that I was going for, but I had never sold one of my own manuscripts for a picture book. I just, there is, there is an instinct for that. And there is a, there's a form that I was never able to really nail no matter how much I tried. And so I was, I would illustrate for other people, but I could never sell my own writing. And so I I never considered myself a writer at all, Mm -hmm. even though the, the whole time I was writing a lot of poetry. I was a songwriter and then in 2010, on New Year's Eve, I drew this little character in my sketchbook and I looked at her and I thought, there's a story there. I, I need to know who this little girl is. And so I, I wrote this, I, it turned into a novel very, very quickly. And I, uh, I went to one of these writing conferences and I mm-hmm. showed the first chapter to an editor and he was the first person to ever tell me, you have to write, you have something to say. And I thought, Really? but I don't know, I don't know how to do this. And he said, no, you just do whatever you were doing to get to this point and keep going. So I did. And, um, I submitted that for a grant and I I got the grant and I I wrote that novel. Now that's not published, but that was the first long format thing I ever wrote. And I thought, wow, this format enables me to tell the stories that were in me all along, but I was trying to cram them into a picture book format and it was never hitting but once I found the novel format, I could take my time to really explore the things, not just the themes, but the length of time that I needed mm-hmm. to develop the stories. And so 
it was in grad school. I, I went to grad school for illustration and there was a project that we had to do, um, a book project on any subject of our choice. And I happened to long story short, um, become interested in what happened to survivors of the Holocaust in the immediate days after the war. And so that was my book project and uh-huh. it got picked up by Knopf and, um, was published right after I graduated from grad school. So, um, and then apparently I became a writer, uh, kind of (laughs) despite myself. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my, that's my path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the, the writing process itself, do do you have any, can, can you talk to me about how, when you sit down to, to write prose, the fact that you're an illustrator, how does that change the way you approach actually putting sentences on a page? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that I, whether it's poetry or songwriting or novels, I think in images, I, mm-hmm. I see the world around me as constantly unfolding images. Mm-hmm. And so as, as a writer, it's just up to me to put those images down in a, in a different medium, which is words. Mm-hmm. So that's partly why my novels are illustrated as well because, uh, first of all, my, my publisher lets me do it, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of unusual, but, um, I don't see the images as embellishment to the words on the page. They're, they're two ways of exploring the scene, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes it makes a lot of sense to me to, put the action or the emotion down in an image. And sometimes it makes more sense to put it down in word imagery. Uh And so, um, and and this was true even when, before I was writing novels, when I was writing songs, for example, I had to have this constant push pull of creating image images and then creating songs. They Uh really danced with each other and I could never have one without the other. You say you're creating visual images to go with songs? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, if I had a job to illustrate an album cover, I always had the musicians send me as much of the album as they had finished, even if it was just demos, because the songs would create images in my mind that I would then use to create the album cover. That... That sounds the the way you phrase it, and this may just because I, I've just been looking at, at a cloud of outrageous blue, which involves synesthesia. Yeah. Uh, you what you just said sounds like a, a a form of synesthesia that the the music creates images. I mean, I should be so lucky. I don't consider <laughs> myself to have synesthesia. Uh-huh. My daughter does, and really, yeah. What surprised me was learning how many of my illustrator friends had synesthesia and never talked about it. Yeah. Maybe we should because, define synesthesia since not everybody right. knows what it is. So synesthesia is a neurological condition where uh, the, the parts of your brain that control the senses and the parts that control, well, they overlap. So for mm-hmm. example, somebody could, uh, could see sound as color or as, you know, shapes in front of them. Uh, I think or Ratatouille, was, uh, who saw flavors as as oh yeah 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 exactly yeah. like some people feel uh, feel emotions on in their body you know like on their skin mm-hmm. or they mm-hmm. um, you know they have certain smells that appear with with different feelings so uh, the the theory is that we all have this as children 
Hmm. or as babies at least, but then those parts of the brain separate and distinguish themselves from each other. And so that's why you'll you'll have separate senses. But Mm -hmm. for some people, that connection doesn't ever separate. Hmm. Uh, So for my daughter, for example, she sees numbers and letters as as color. Uh Uh-huh. It, it's all very fascinating to me. I, you're, you could be right that I have some sort of form of that, although, I mean, synesthesia still has a lot of uh, study to be done about it. Yeah. Um, maybe that's. A I form think. Of, I'm I think sure. surely some. I think. I think surely everybody has some form of that, or else things oh, sure. like metaphor. What I mean, you couldn't even begin to to write visual imagery. For instance, if if there that's true, there weren't. I mean, there weren't some something resembling synesthesia in all of us, right? I mean, I, I think it's right. I mean, maybe artists and writers are a little bit more in tune to that. I'm not sure, but uh, I, I always think of Marcus Zusak in the book Thief describes a chocolate sky. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a little unusual because the sky's not brown, right? You know, yeah, right. Um, but it meant more than, Oh, it was a Brown or, or almost black sky. I mean, it was, you're talking about multiple factors of that description. Yeah. You know, the, the, the feel of the atmosphere, the humidity in the air, you know, it could be any one of a number of things. So I think you're right. Yeah. I have a friend who has uh, synesthesia and she, she'll write, she's a writer and, and she'll, sometimes she'll write some, you know, some bit of figurative language that to me makes no sense. Like this, this is not even, this makes no sense. And she's like, it's obviously makes sense, but it, but it's, that would be the, the, one of the limitations of uh, being synesthetic is that you sometimes don't know what doesn't connect with other, with other people, I should think. Yeah. That's interesting that you say that because I, this character in a cloud of outrageous blue, Edith has synesthesia. And I had to put myself in the shoes of somebody with a condition that I don't have. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, I interviewed a lot of people with synesthesia. I would, I would send them pieces of music. I would ask them to describe, you know, certain words, you know, what, do, what do these words feel like to you and things. And I would either use their descriptions or I would interpret it in my own and, and think, okay, I think I kind of have this. Mm-hmm. And the, the advantage is that every synesthete sees things differently. So right. a sound that could be purple for one person could be green for another. So, you know, there's a certain amount of flexibility in there, but, uh, the, the biggest thing for me, the, um, let's see, like a value that I had in writing in this way was that I never make apologies for it. Mm -hmm. I just describe it as it is. And the point is that Edith doesn't see things the way other people see them. That's the whole point. Yeah. And I think that that was important for, I, I used synesthesia also as a, as a gateway to understanding the medieval mind because the, the pre-modern mindset and worldview was fairly magical. Right. It, it took for granted the supernatural. It took for granted the unseen mm-hmm. as part of the fabric of, of everyday life. And we don't do that anymore because we're post-enlightenment, we're we're modern, we're scientific, we're all of those things. And even with people of faith, it's very, you know, gosh, there's all sorts of theological arguments against, you know, the gifts and against um, the supernatural and all of those things. But we don't understand that that way of seeing things is about five minutes old. Right. Yeah. You know, 
So I wanted to use synesthesia to show the reader that the, the subject of perception is, you know, at one time in history was much more loaded than it is now. Yeah. So that, you know, one person uh, with, with a different way of perceiving would be considered a, a saint in one time and a heretic in another, you yeah. know, yeah. and all of that could just have been down to somebody having synesthesia, you know, it could be so simple, but either things are over-spiritualized or they're under-spiritualized. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the synesthesia was a little, it was a gateway to exploring that. Yeah. Neat. yeah. So uh, you've alluded to the fact that this is a book set in the medieval era, set in the 14th century during the plague, yes. mm -hmm. um, which seems very appropriate to, Strangely relevant. Strangely relevant. <laughs> I didn't yes. plan it. Good thinking. Um, can, I don't know how to ask this question, but what are, what are some things that, that since you've spent, since you've been thinking about plagues longer than the rest of us. Sure. What are some, what are some things you learned, some insights that you have, uh, tell me something I don't know about plagues and pandemics. Oh, oh, there's so much to say about plagues. <laughs> well, first of all, any plague, any pandemic is far more about what it does to people and societies than just the disease. And I mean that in a positive and a negative way. So, I mean, clearly it was fascinating in studying the plague to see how medicine was handled and, you know, be, before germ theory and, you know, the, the thoughts that, uh, about how disease was spread and how you could protect yourself from it and everything. Um, and, you know, I think we look at the Middle Ages as some sort of dark time period where nobody knew anything and they were, you know, all they did was put leeches on things and, you know, <laughs> it's, but it's so not true. I mean, there, there was a lot of experimentation going on and a lot of sort of pre-scientific method, mm -hmm. uh, really brilliant thought. And, I think that from the Great Plague of 1348 or 1347 to 51, if you want to be really specific about it, that really was the birth of modern medicine. Mm -hmm. For example, you had a guy named Guy de Choliac, who was the Pope's physician, and he was experimenting on himself. He actually contracted the plague, and so he experimented on himself, and he survived. And he wrote all of his observations down in in a book called The, uh, the Surgery of Guy de Choliac. And that tome is a, is a pre-modern scientific, you know, it's a medical book uh. that has to do with a, applying a pre-scientific method to, you know, curing the plague. Yeah. So, but beyond that, so that, you know, there's positives with that. Obviously, we would not have had the Renaissance if it hadn't been for the plague. There are reasons for that. I could go, we could talk for half an hour on that, which, <laughs> you know, but, um, but also, at the same time, there was an immense amount of superstition and fear and castigation and heresy hunting and, um, you know, a lot of teardown in the religious fabric of the time. So, uh, you know, the church lost a lot of authority at that time because of either over-promising or, like, you know, heresy hunting and things like that. Um, and these these movements would arise uh, of, for example, people, and this is in my book as well, um, people who would 
take on extreme penitence. And so they would go walking through the streets of a town, beating themselves with whips Mm -hmm. in an attempt to please the angry God who was uh, bringing the plague on them. Uh Um, So, and I think that there are, you know, there's, there are a lot of parallels to our time and what's going on with the social upheaval we're experiencing. I think, you know, the fear that people have of contracting it, but also the fear that they have for their livelihoods. It, it, I think that we, we see all of these things being played out as, as binary choices instead of, okay, well, in times of fear, a number of things and a number of levels happen within people's own, you know, minds and, and souls, but also within their social fabric. And that's yeah. definitely, we, we see that playing out in real time. Yeah. So none of this, none of this surprises me. I mean, to me, I'm just, my whole mindset is what's next. This could go one of two ways. We could have another Renaissance or it could be the end of our civilization. The end of our, the, uh, well, um, well, maybe not our civilization, but maybe our country. It could be the end of our country. It could lead to it, this, if it's not handled properly and if people um, don't take responsibility on themselves for the healing of it, we, we could very well see, you know, a civil war. That's, that's my opinion about it. And I, I say that dispassionately and completely apolitically. I'm looking at it entirely as a writer of historical fiction who sees how these cycles play out. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Sorry to scare anybody. <laughs> well, but let's, maybe we could lean a little bit more on the Renaissance possibility. Let's do that. Then. <laughs> yeah. I vote, vote for the Renaissance. Yes, me too. Where, where do we vote? <laughs> <laughs> By mail, I guess. We, uh, we vote in the courts of heaven. That's where we vote. Yeah, there you go. The, okay, I've been listening to your podcast, Desperisms. Um, yeah. And is, is this kind of a, do you picture this as a limited run? I mean, you're going to do a certain number of episodes and be done, or are you indefinitely doing this thing now? I'm going to keep going as long as I have things to say about thinking like an artist, which is a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's not a podcast about creativity or about how to get into the industry or anything right. like that. It's really about how being an artist intersects with every part of life. So right now I've just been laying out, my basic philosophy of what, what are the ways that we think like artists and the past few episodes, I've been doing a little bit more topical stuff having to do with the current, with current events. Mm -hmm. But in the future, I mean, I'm going to tackle everything from being a working parent or whether you, whether to have kids as an artist, you know, that whole, you know, powder keg um, to, you know, how should artists think about politics? How should artists think about, Uh, social media or about self-promotion or, you know, just in terms of let's not let the world dictate to us how we should be. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but recognize our gifts as artists in how we we do have a different way of perceiving the world and of bringing that to bear on the world around us. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a vital part. Yeah. Yes. Your motto for the podcast and maybe for more than the podcast is the, the life is, let's see, the work is, I wrote it down. The work isn't everything, but everything is the work. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I mean by that, that artists can easily get obsessed with 
their art in, an, in a number of different ways. And that when you're in, when you're in the flow of creating work, it can be all consuming. You can also beat yourself up a lot for not being where you expect yourself to be at a certain point. Mm -hmm. And so the work becomes everything. Mm -hmm. You see everything through that lens and it can take your life over. But it's important for the art, the artist to understand that first of all, being an artist in the world is, it's not the highest calling. It's one of yeah. many callings, yeah. right? Um, so the work isn't everything, but everything is the work, meaning that everything that you do take in mm -hmm. will find its way into your work, whether it's that you cook a particularly great meal for your family or that you have uh, an especially horrible fight with your in-laws or, you know, <laughs> all of that can, all of that will find its way into your work, your childhood, your hopes for old age, um, all of it. It's not mm -hmm. just about putting your pen to the paper or your brush to the canvas or whatever. It's about a whole, it's about understanding your, your life as an artist, as a whole person calling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You, you talk about the idea of reclaiming an artistic worldview. Yeah. Um, so re a, how did it get unclaimed and B, what is a world artistic worldview? Let's see. Well, and you can answer B part B first, whichever. Let's, whatever. let's answer part B part first. Okay. So I have four tenets of the artistic worldview or, or of Vesperisms, let's say, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm certainly not the first person or the last to talk about artistic process. This is just how I see it. The first is that artists see. So the very nature of being an artist is seeing be below the surface mm -hmm. and beyond what's presented to you as your initial, um, your initial perception. So right. artists are, are made and called to go beyond surface. Mm -hmm. The second one is an artistic worldview is open and expansive. What it means is that where, where many others would close down possibility, artists by their very nature, we, we push that door open. We, we stick our foot in the door when it's closing and we say, what if there's more? Mm-hmm. What more can I explore about this? The third is, let's see if I can remember all of them off the top of my head. Maybe you've written them down. <laughs> I wrote them down, but I'm going to see how you, uh, how you do here. Okay, let's see. Um, it starts with an H. Human-centered. Art That's is human-centered. Okay, so, <laughs> so I mean two things by that. One is that artists, and by, I mean, by artists, I mean writers, dancers, visual artists, musicians, any medium any creative medium, we take in things through our bodies. So that the five senses are the way that we take in things. And it's the way everybody takes things in. But I think artists can, when it becomes all about the work, we can forget that we are people in bodies mm -hmm. that, um, who use our bodies for our work. So I, a common thing among artists is that uh, we want to separate ourselves from the limitations of our bodies in order to make more work. It's like, it's this common yearning that we have, but to remind ourselves that we are in our bodies to create the work, but also that we create work for other people. And so that we, um, there's the work that we create for ourselves, but then there's the work that's going to be seen and heard by other people. And we have a responsibility to our audience 
and we have a responsibility about what we put into the world, which again, because I'm connected to medieval history, the whole concept of an individual artist putting their work up in a gallery is again, something that's five minutes old. Yeah. Um, it, the, the, the concept of a superstar artist or something like that, you know, creating their genius in a studio and putting it up in a museum. It's like very, very new. And we don't really know what that does to people or to the work. And then the last tenet is artists allow for growth and change. It's, it's part of being open and expansive, but it's, uh, it's the, it's the component that has to do with how our work affects other people and how, and how we allow the world to go on without, I want to say without judgment. Uh, there's a lot of ways that this can play out. So Vesperisms really came into being as, as an alternative to the political worldview, which I saw closing people's minds down. So, uh, especially artists, because we are so open and expansive, we are particularly vulnerable to messaging, uh, that can cause us to, um, to, to draw binary distinctions. So if we're told that, for example, uh, subjects of, of justice only exist in this one part of the political spectrum, then that's going to cause a conflict within the artist. It's going to cause a conflict with the open and expansive part that wants justice for everybody and wants equality for everybody, but with the, um, the tendency to close down that comes from certain political movements. Right. And those could be on the right or the left, by the way. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think, I think the one function of political rhetoric is to simplify the world in such a yes. way that, uh, you know, you know, Things like if you're not with me, you know, if you're not with us, you're for against us. If you're not, you know, just just oversimplification, which yes. frankly does make it much easier to communicate political messages and to motivate people to vote, and and a tendency to um, motivate by fear. You know that there's so many, as you you know, on a a political worldview, as, as you put it, um, mm-hmm. in so many ways is the opposite of, of what you're talking. This this opening that you're talking about. Right. And there, there's a word for what happens when artists become susceptible to that. And it starts with a P with a P it's called propaganda mm-hmm. and artists are definitely susceptible to this mm-hmm. and we have to guard ourselves against it. The bravest artists in history and the bravest writers are the ones who refuse to be co-opted uh, for political messaging, especially for social and political messaging. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you may, I don't know if you've done an episode about this yet, but, but how, how does the um, writer artist resist those, you know, th- that pressure? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of ways. Um, one is by understanding history and right now, you know, like I said, the, the concept of the superstar artist or writer who's going to make a name for themselves is, is very modern and very recent. Artists before the modern era, really, they, they were part of a collective whole 
for instance, in the guild system, you know, or uh, most of the works being created were for public uh, consumption, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so there is such a drive really post plague. And I could even, I could draw many connections to this, but yeah. uh, to, to segment ourselves off into um, hyper individualism. Now mm-hmm. I believe in the individual. I, I very much do, but there that can cross the line into um, hyper individualism and, and egotism, narcissism. Mm-hmm. So by guarding against that, by, by looking at history and seeing, uh, by studying megalomaniacs and tyrants and totalitarian leaders and, and, and understanding that everybody has that propensity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the artist can take a, a humble approach toward their own work and toward their responsibility in the world. Um, but yeah, and understanding the history of propaganda, how artists have been used in that way. It, it, it's just, it's inoculating yourself against, um, against those possibilities in yourself and making the decision before that comes knocking on your door yeah. that I will not sign on. Mm-hmm. The strength of the artist really is the uh it the strength of the artist really is resistance Hmm. saying uh i will i will not denounce what you ask me to denounce and i will not ascribe to what you tell me to ascribe to yeah um so let's 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 just take the next step here i want to so that's you're saying in effect you Surely you're not saying that a that an artist can't have political convictions. Of course not. Social convictions. Um, so how do I how do I balance these things? I mean, would, would, yeah. Saying, I, I mean, I think my convictions mm-hmm. have to come from not from outside, not to be assigned from outside me, but rather I they're my convictions rather than. I mean, I, I think I think part of yeah. what we're talking about perhaps is a a disconnect between, um, you know, the, the, the rewards, the proper rewards for art making, um, are not political rewards, monetary rewards. I mean, you know, I I can imagine there being monetary rewards for, I have not experienced very many monetary rewards for art making, but, but the, um, but when that is the, the chief goal of art making, you're doing something besides art making. Correct. Um, and so an alignment of, of goal, you know, the, the stated goals and actual goals is maybe a, a, a helpful thing, but an alignment of, I am, I'm making what I make, um, and expecting to gain, uh, what, what am I saying here? But in effect, um, again, the, 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 the goal of art is not my own aggrandizement and my own positioning in you know, my own political positioning, but rather loving my, loving my audience, trying to tell them the truth. Um, and so I guess insofar as my political position is a desire to tell people the truth rather than a desire to consolidate political power or to. Right. Right. That's a good point. So, so art, art making is about truth telling. Mm -hmm. 
at its core. And that's why propaganda is so particularly, particularly, and I hate that word, particularly, I try not to use it because it's hard to say. Um, that is why propaganda feels so disgusting mm-hmm. is because the, 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 the art, the mechanism of the artist has been co-opted to tell a lie rather than the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I, I have to pull the camera back a little bit because I am a Christian. Uh-huh. So I believe that truth has a capital T uh-huh. and truth is a person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a be truth is, is a being and a decidedly non-human being other than the incarnated Jesus, you know, but as, as, as the eternal transcendent, you know, eter- uh, I said eternal already being right. Who is truth and who is love. Any sort of political positioning is so down here on the ground. Mm-hmm. It's so base yeah. It's so, it's so human centered. It's all it is, is human power plays. Now, yeah. sometimes those can be to good ends. I'm not saying they're not, but we have to recognize that politics is not a religion. Mm-hmm. Politics, it does, it does not, will not, and should not ever fulfill the place in the human soul that, that God fills. I won't mm-hmm. even say religion. God, God is so high above us and must be our aspiration Mm -hmm. as artists. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, after the plague, what happened when, when the structure of the church began to crumble, the authority of the church began to crumble and we, we entered the modern era with our hyper-individualism and everything, we lost that sense that the artist is creating unto something. Hmm. Obviously there have been artists who have and who've, yeah. who've retained that, but we've put the human being and politics and, and anything human. We've put that even science, mm-hmm. our scientific understanding, which is like, <laughs> uh, I believe in science, but you know, it's still like, we're never going to figure it out. Our, our scientific understanding is so puny <laughs> compared yeah. to the reality that's out there, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that that has been a great loss and that art, that artists relationship to the truth and to, you know, love of neighbor, love of the audience yeah. has been so fractured that I'm really passionate to help us understand that the political worldview or anything else that's human is so base mm-hmm. and that our aspirations must be higher. And that is what is going to be able to pull us out of our, our susceptibility to to manipulation. Yeah, yeah. You, you, know, you speak of truth of the capital T. You know, another another helpful category for me is just reality, right? Yes. I mean, and 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 also distinguishing between reality and the status quo. And so, right. you know, the political worldview is about managing the status quo, changing the status quo so that it's more like the way I think the world ought to ought to look. Um, and, and when you talk about the artist's job is to see, it seems to me, you know, we're talking about seeing reality, seeing through yes. the status quo, seeing through lies, seeing through everything that's not real to reality and, and giving an account right. of that, you know, as, a, as an artist, as a 
as a writer, as a you know, filmmaker, whatever. Right. Um, and and it, yeah, I mean, because even the language of truth gets so. I mean, everybody says they're telling the truth, right? <laughs> but the truth according to whom? Yeah. The truth according to CNN, the truth according right. to Fox News, the truth according to Vox, the truth, you know, in other words, there's so many, there are so many more filters yeah. now mm-hmm. yeah. on our, on our concept of truth Yeah. that we think we're telling the truth, but really it, and, and I think this is really the privilege of the historical researcher mm-hmm. is to understand the, tr- the, the trail of what came before us. Yeah. So that we understand, okay, well, when, when this institution came into play, it put this filter on, on yeah. our perception. Yeah, that's good. And so, and so the artist, um, if, we, if we accept that the artist is a seer, mm-hmm. right? If mm-hmm. it's a prophetic calling, if we're meant to um, see beyond the surface, then we have to be able to trust our own reality. We have to be able to say, uh, no, I really do believe what my eyes see and my ears hear and my fingers touch. You know, I believe in the world as it's laying itself out to me and not how it's filtered through hmm. this screen or this commentator or this outlet. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. All right. We are running low on time, so I'm going to end with a question I always end with. Sure. Who are the writers who make you want to write best? I know you do a lot of things besides writing, but we're talking about writing today. So who are the writers mm. that make you want to, to write your own self? Dostoevsky. Huh? Okay. Uh, so you read Dostoevsky and think, yeah, I think I can do that. Oh, no, I never, I know I could never do that. <laughs> <laughs> but he makes me want to write because he is the ultimate student of human nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. nobody writes human nature like Dostoevsky. And when I say I read Dostoevsky, I mean, slow, I've never finished one of his books. I mean, really? I've been reading the brothers Karamazov for about five years uh-huh. because I can only handle about a page at a time. And then it's enough for me to chew on for yeah. like weeks. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same, same with Jane Eyre. Like uh, Jane Eyre is one that I'll come back to and, and read every couple of years. Yeah. Just for like a, a shot in the arm, you yeah, know, what a great book with that kind of language and uh, and that kind of human understanding. Um, Anthony Doerr is another one who wrote All the Light We Cannot See. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to find language that's that beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So great. yeah, good good books are hard to find these <laughs> days. I I I do love the uh, the classics. Yeah, but those I think those would be those would be my top three at least in terms of fiction yeah Yeah. great well um i hope i hope this uh the cloud of outrageous blue does great hope a lot of people read it um i've certainly i've not finished it but i've certainly enjoyed um the the, what i've read of it i thought it was i thought you're doing a great job and i love the pictures that we didn't get around to talking about the the illustration but i I think well you're your listeners you said can, you, uh, can pre-order it, and uh, that's right. Okay. There. Well, no, I, I think by the time this airs, it'll be uh, it'll be released, right? You're Great. In mid mid August, is that right? Twenty fifth, yeah. Twenty fifth. Okay. All right. I, I yeah. think I, I think people can can not even have to pre-order by the time this airs. Great. Um, 
And but real quickly, before we started recording, you were telling me that that you were uh, approaching this as sort of a, a inspired by the uh, illuminated manuscripts of the of the Middle Ages. Um, right. Right. So even though you can get A Cloud of Outrageous Blue on audiobook, which is going to be the, the narrator for it is just phenomenal. I, I'm yeah. excited. I'm going to be interviewing her on my podcast just actually because okay. she's just incredible. Um, so you can get it on audio, you can get it on ebook, and you would get the illustrations that way too. But in terms of the object itself, I wanted to create the book as an object that felt like an illuminated manuscript for the modern reader. Mm-hmm. So it's fully illustrated in color. And it's, it's beautifully done. It's on beautiful paper. It's, you know, it's a, it's an heirloom book. I would say it's an, it's a, it's it's a, it's a gift book. It's one that you're going to want to keep around and, you know, return to again and again. And my publishers have always done such a beautiful job with my books. So that's great. Yeah. Well, I, um, I've only seen the PDF, but I'm excited to see the actual book. So, all right, Vesper, thank you so much for being here. Vesper Stamper. And, um, and thanks for, thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song, Too Good, as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.